Hey, welcome everybody in the room. All Ports Live locations, Cedar Rapids, Iowa, Scottsdale, um, Indianapolis, all the 13 other Ports Live locations. We are kicking off a brand new series there. He said it looking at shocking statements of Jesus. Anybody from Houston, Texas in this room? Awesome. It's my old stomping grounds. I grew up in Houston and I grew up in a time where there was something called Astral World. Anybody remember Astral World? Man, rest in peace. Astroworld was Six Flags down in Houston. And this would be the form of entertainment that me and I had two brothers would go all the time and you go ride the rides at Astroworld. We just love roller coasters, still love roller coasters. And when you're in high school and you're growing up and you go ride the same rides over and over and over and you are a dumb male, you eventually get so bored that you're like, we need to make up some games to play on these rides. So the game that we came up with, my older brother had, was that on the ride, you have to change shirts with the person sitting immediately next to you. <laughs> and there were certain rules, like only guys can play. And, uh, <laughs> and the ride had to be one of those where it had a bar that came down, not over the shoulders, and that you had to wait until you were over the hill and the ride had begun. And then there was like confirmation uh, things that had to be done, where you had to confirm, like, do you have the shirt? Confirm, I have the shirt. One of us is not leaving, or if it goes somewhere, one of us is leaving without a shirt, and it ain't going to be me. So we came up with all this stuff, and, and as you would have it, eventually you do that enough times, and that gets kind of boring too. So to mix it up, one day I was there with a friend, and we did this game. We're laughing. It's fun. It's, it's again, it's, a, it's what dumb high school boys do. And he had the idea, we should do a full clothes switch. Shirt, shorts, shoes, everything but undergarments. And it was like, man, that is bold. That is, oh, let's do it. We go on the ride. We get ready to the ride. Had it all planned out. There was a flip in the ride. There were different turns. And we're going through the process. And we get over the hill. Click, 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 click. Woo! And we're on the ride. Things begun. Begin to go through. Get up the shirt off. <laughs> this is such a terrible story. Get the shirt off. Hand him the shirt. Confirm you have the shirt. He has the shirt. Gets the shirt. We're going through the ride. We begin to work through the shorts, and you know, you're trying to like shimmy underneath. You had to like lift your legs up a little bit to keep that bar from going all the way down to give you enough wiggle room to maneuver. And going through that maneuver, get the basketball shorts, hand in the basketball shorts, get his shorts, and I realize I've got a problem. He was wearing not basketball shorts, but jean shorts, which are much more difficult to do when you're working with like three inches of real estate as you're going on this ride. And so I'm like, oh man, this is not going good. Trying to get these pants, <laughs> trying to get these pants up as I'm going on the ride. We're going around the turn and I'm realizing, man, I've got like 20 seconds left. I've got to get these things up. And we go around another turn, we come in, and I didn't make it. <laughs> and so I have to stand up pull up my pants in front of lines of people as I walk off in another man's shorts as people are like hiding their kids' eyes. Like, what kind of ride is this? And we, on every roller coaster ride, there was a, a place where they take your picture in the middle of the ride. You guys have seen it before. So we were like, 
man, that was legendary. Let's go see where the picture was taken and what that looked like. And we go up and I get to the kiosk where there's a lady behind and you have like six different pictures of each of the different carts. And, and one of those where our cart would have been, there was no picture. It was a black box with a red X over it. And I asked the lady, because I was like, man, we don't buy this. It's kind of a funny memory. And so I'm like, hey, psst, what happened to that one? She's like, uh, sir, inappropriate conduct. And I was like, man, but do you think we could buy it from you? And she's like, no, you cannot buy it from me. It's inappropriate conduct. You're lucky I'm not having you thrown out of the park right now for change your clothes and decent exposure on that ride. And I was like, all right, have a nice day. Okay, let's go. <laughs> what does that have to do with this brand new series? Well, in that instance, it was clear that the conduct that was behaved, or our conduct, was deemed inappropriate conduct. And Jesus, over and over and over throughout Scripture, in a much more serious way, lays out that when it comes to you and I as followers of Christ, there is an appropriate conduct that is meant to mark us. And the consequences for not living out that appropriate conduct are much more significant than not getting a picture at Six Flags. They're much more connected to the purpose that you and I as the church are here. And we're going to kick off a teaching that he had that was radical in the first century and is equally as radical when it's lived out today. And the conduct that we're going to talk about relates to love. Now, all of us, love is one of those words that everybody would say, like, I love, and we all love things, and it's almost become watered down. Like, I love my kids, I love my wife, I love nitro brew from Starbucks, I love audible books, I love uh, Chick-fil-A sauce, whatever they put in that sauce. Man, uh, there's a bunch of things that I would say, man, these are things that I love. And you've got your own list, too. And Jesus would say, there is a specific group of people you are to add to your list of things that you love, and it is not optional. Specifically, we're talking about tonight on There He Said It, the shocking teachings of Jesus, that Jesus commanded that if you are going to follow him, you and I must love our enemies. Whatever's on the list of things that you love, Jesus would say, it is not finished until you add to it loving your enemies. We're going to look at a passage in Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus walks through and gives us really the command and the call that you and I are to love people that don't love us back, to love parents that hurt us, to love coworkers that mistreat us, to love people that judge us because of the way that we look, to love people that hurt us and that harm us, to love even people, he's going to say, that hate you. In my lifetime, I don't know that there's ever been a time where this message has been more important in terms of the world around us and the division and the tribalism and the hatred and the venom that is poured out that social media has only made worse and worse. And tragically, how a lot of the way of thinking that the world, because if you're in the world, you should hate people and you should draw lines and you should treat people poorly. And if people treat you poorly, you should respond in kind, unless you're a Christian. And Jesus is going to say that for anyone who wants to follow him, they are called to love those who hurt them, those who harm them, those who hate them, or said otherwise, to love their 
enemies. And if you and I and every person just in this room will begin to live out that teaching, it's going to change your world and it's going to change the city that we live in and the city of every place that is listening right now. As the body of Christ embraces the radical teaching of Jesus. And so I'm going to look at Matthew chapter 5 with you. We're going to walk through three things of how Jesus says to respond to those who hurt you, those who hate you, those who harm you. Found in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, as we've covered before, Jesus gave the most famous sermon in human history, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. It's incredible, it's powerful, beautiful, and in it he covers a lot of topics, and one that he covers is how you and I are to relate to people, and the radical idea of you are called to love even those who hate you, or love your enemies. So I'm going to start in verse 38, and we will walk through. He says this. Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. You have heard it said, Jesus talking to this crowd of people on a mountainside. You've heard people tell you that an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. Jesus, what are you saying? Jesus brings up, at that day, there was a system of justice or a way of thinking about it. An eye for an eye was basically like, hey, if you cause somebody to lose their eye, you lose their eyes. In other words, a standard of justice that you repay harm equal to the harm that was created. It was common. It's the way everyone thought. You get even. If there's somebody that does you wrong, there's a girl who breaks girl code, starts dating your old boyfriend, or the guy that you knew you liked, man, you, you got bad blood. She is out. That's how you treat her. You got a parent that was not anything like what God says parents should be when you were growing up. And you're finally out of the house, you cut them off. You get payback. You get retaliation. And Jesus tells his followers, you've heard retaliation is the type of justice you should look for. But I tell you something altogether different. That if somebody slaps you on the cheek, you're to turn the other cheek to them. I'm gonna explain and expound what I mean. But Jesus is introducing that if you follow him, you will look radically different than what comes natural in terms of when you are wronged, I wanna get even. Not that there still won't be a natural thing inside of you that wants vengeance or justice or payback, you just don't choose to follow it. We're born really naturally with having something inside of us that when we're wrong, we just come back swinging, just as human nature, it's just natural. I see this really clearly with my kids. I've got a five-year-old and a three-year-old. A five-year-old son named Crew and a three-year-old daughter named Monroe. I think we even have a picture of them. And these two, all the time, will just throw hands. Our whole life is like, separate the two of you. Stop hitting your sister. Stop hitting your brother. The other day, we're outside. We're playing Family Olympics. Dad of the year, Family Olympics, okay? Olympics are coming up. Team USA, let's do this. Got five different events. We're playing the event. My son stubs his toe, which, you know, hurts when you're five or 35. Stubs his toe. He's over there jumping. He's crying. Tear ducts just going full send. My sister, or his sister, comes up. She's like giving him a big hug. He goes, boom, pushes her right on the ground. <laughs> it's like such a sweet moment. It's like, oh, man, so sweet. Boom! She jumps up. She starts swinging at him like she's in Rocky. I'm like, oh my, all right, we'll cancel the Olympics. You can't have any family time together. But this is constantly, it's just what they do. Man, you hit me, I'm going to come back swinging at you. It's human nature. And sadly, most people never grow out of that. 
that there's something inside of all of us that just even feels justified. You hurt me, I'm going to hurt you back. And Jesus says, man, that's okay, unless you're a follower of him. And then in the face of hurt, being harmed, you don't seek retaliation, you seek reconciliation. First idea I want to talk about is what Jesus lays out, which is a pretty powerful idea, that a Christian's response to those who harm them is forgiveness. A Christian's response to those who harm them is forgiveness. When he brings up the idea of turning the other cheek, he's not saying take there and take abuse, or else he would say just take it on the same cheek. The Jewish metaphor that he's using of the metaphor would have been in turning the other cheek You are starting fresh, starting a new relationship. I'm choosing not to hold the harm that you have done to me. And he's not literally talking about somebody slapping you on the face. He's talking about the idea of forgiveness. You have harmed me. I am going to start fresh by forgiving you. I'm going to extend forgiveness when I'm hurt. What is forgiveness? Let me lay out what it is and then what it isn't. Forgiveness biblically, according to Matthew chapter 18, Romans chapter 12, 1 Peter chapter 2, is releasing, this is what forgiveness, how do you know when you've forgiven somebody? It is releasing the demand for justice to God. What is biblical forgiveness? Or what is forgiveness biblically? It is, they wronged me. It's not pretending it didn't happen. It is releasing the demand for justice to get even to God. That every sin was paid for on the cross by Jesus or will be paid for for all of eternity by that person in hell. But there's a lot of misconceptions around what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is not excusing sin. It's not saying, oh, that's okay. You cheated on me. It's not that big of a deal. It's a huge deal. Sin is such a big deal to God that he had to die for it. So it's not excusing sin or pretending that it's okay. Forgiveness is not forgetting. You hear like, oh, you just forgive, you forget, as though, man, I'm, I'm not even there anymore. In order to forgive, you have to remember and say, I'm not holding that against you. I'm not pretending like it didn't happen. But I'm choosing to release the demand for payback, to release the debt that was created, to release what you owe me because you hurt me. I release that to God. Forgiveness, forgiveness is not denying hurt or anger. You should be hurt. Some of you guys were so deeply wounded by what a family member did to you, and it was wrong. It may have even been abuse. God didn't want that. He didn't cause that. It wasn't your fault. And you forgiving someone doesn't mean, man, I'm just gonna pretend like I'm not hurt. You should be hurt. You should be angry over sin. God was to the point where he would send his son. And finally, forgiveness is not conditional for the believer. You and I are called to forgive even if they don't accept it, understand it, even if they're not present. God has commanded in Matthew chapter 18, you and I are to forgive up to 70 times 7 or over and over and over. That forgiveness is not conditional It is releasing the demand for justice to God. It is forgiving as God has forgiven us. There's not a person in this room, including myself, 
who has been sinned against more than every one of us sinned against God today through your thoughts, through your actions, through your words, that all of us have sinned not just against other people and hurt other people, we have sinned against God. And he has called us to forgive as God in Christ said, man, everything you've done, I covered it. It's forgiven. My death on the cross, it's paid for. That's how I forgive you. And that's how I call you to forgive others. It's not saying stay in an abusive relationship. And when Paul talks about this idea of loving your enemies, in Romans chapter 12 and Romans 13, he then goes into the role of government, which is there to protect, to bring about peace. And so if you're in an abusive environment, relationship, the Bible is not saying just stay in that. It would say get out, stop enabling that abuse. It is talking about when somebody hurts you, you and I have been called to forgive them, to release that demand for justice to God. How do I forgive? First thing, if you can overlook an offense, you should overlook it. Biblically, the Bible says that, hey, when it comes to forgiving, there's certain things and certain steps that you walk through to do it. But the first thing would be like, man, can, can I just overlook this? Do I need to go through the process and choose to cancel the debt or initiate a conversation with them and they're a believer? Or can I just kind of overlook it? Proverbs chapter 19, verse 11 says, it is to one's glory to overlook an offense. It is a glorious thing to be able to go, you know what? They didn't call me back. I'm believing the best. Life happens. People get busy. It's cool. It is a glorious thing to be able to overlook. So first, can you overlook it? How do you know if you can overlook it? Well, if you're not able to move past it and it keeps coming back, you probably are not able to, look to overlook it. What do I mean? Like, it's like this. Anytime you eat food, there's certain foods that you've eaten before, I've eaten before, and you're like, man, that something is not right here. And you're in that middle ground where you're like, is, is this food poisoning? Is my next 24 hours about to be totally different than I had planned? Or is this just gonna like, man, I don't, it's kind of just feel weird, but it's gonna pass. And there's times you eventually reach a, a threshold where you're like, it is not passing. It is coming back up. I'm gonna see this again. In the same way, when it comes to those hurts, offenses, if you find yourself driving along the road and you're replaying the tape and replaying the tape and walking back through and I can't believe they always and they never, it's time for you to recognize you can't overlook it. You need to choose to forgive it. How do you else forgive? The Bible says that we do this as Christians quickly. We keep what's called short accounts or I move quick. Once I know I can't overlook it, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna say, if they're a believer, Hey, this is how you hurt me. Ephesians chapter four talks about, Ephesians chapter five, not letting the sun go down on your anger, which is the principle of just, hey, you move quickly to resolve hurts with other believers in your life. If they are a believer, you go to them and they, you tell them, you hurt me. If you can't overlook it, it's gonna cause a barrier in your relationship. So when somebody hurts you, you move towards them and if they're another Christian, you go to them and you seek to be reconciled, which means you go and you share, this is how I was hurt. While doing so, you own your part. Hey, I need to ask for your forgiveness for blank, blank, blank. But when you say, this is how you hurt me, or you bring up how you were hurt in order to extend forgiveness, you focus, this is really, really, really important. When you do that, you focus on the specific action that they took and the emotion it created in you. 
In other words, hey, it really hurt me when you said that you were having all your best friends together at the house to hang out, and I didn't get a phone call. Action. And that phone call not happening made me feel like you don't care about me. Emotion it created. It really hurt me whenever somebody told me that you had been gossiping about me behind my back. Is that true? That gossip really hurt me because it made me feel like I can't trust you. You focus on the specific action and the specific emotion that it created. You don't focus on character. Like, this is just who you are. You're a bad apple. You always do this kind of thing. You know what? I knew this is who you are. You don't focus on attacking their character. You don't focus on the past. You focus on the specific action and the emotion it created in you. And say, that hurt me. And if they're a believer, hopefully they're able to look and say, will you please forgive me? And as it depends on you, if you're in that scenario, it's your responsibility and call from Christ to forgive those even when they've hurt you. The Bible teaches retaliation is not a sign of strength. In other words, getting even is not a sign of strength. It is a sign of weakness. That it is a sign of strength to extend forgiveness, to ask for forgiveness, and that you and I, as Christians, the response to those who hurt us is to forgive. Paul says this in Romans chapter 12, talking about the same thing. Repay no one evil for evil. Give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with everyone. Beloved, I want you to think about this verse. In a culture, in a world that screams for justice. Screams for justice because they are made in the image of God. And God put inside of every human heart a desire for justice. But that desire for justice leads them to come out swinging and attacking other people. And the Bible says that is never the road to justice or vengeance. It says, never avenge yourselves. That's crazy. Never avenge yourselves. Wait, Paul, I mean, never? Like, you know, what about a couple times when you were... Never avenge yourself. Leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. I was reading this week, and maybe the most powerful recent example of what I was reading was recent, of something that happened about six years ago in 2015 in Charleston. And it was one of uh, a man who quoted the verse that I just read. He was a man who, in uh, 2015... There was a shooting and a horrific act of evil took place where a young man went into a church where people were having Bible study and worshiping God. And with hatred in his heart, he shot at people just worshiping God. And victim after victim killed. There were nine of them that were killed at St. Emmanuel's in Charleston, South Carolina. And each of those victims left behind family, and some of the family in the aftermath spoke directly to the killer and gave one of the most powerful examples of what Christians do in the face of horrific, horrific evil. And they forgive. Here's what one of the men who lost his wife, his wife was killed 
He looked at the murderer in the face in the courtroom and he said this, I want you to know I forgive you, son, and my family forgives you. But we would like you to take this opportunity to repent. Repent, confess, and give your life to the one who matters most, Jesus Christ, so that he can change it and he can change your attitude. It's breathtaking. In the face of hours after you killed my wife, He says, I forgive you, and I hope that God has mercy on you. Years later, he was asked, four years later, do you regret doing that or saying that? That's what he said. The man was asked four years later if he had any second thoughts. He said, I always get asked that. People want want to know why, even if he did repent, why I would ever forgive the man who murdered my wife. My answer to them is always the same. I chose to forgive the racist killer because I believe and trust God's word when he tells me vengeance is God's to repay, not mine. I need not avenge the vile deeds of this killer. It is mine to avenge. I will repay the scripture promised me, God says. Christians in the face of harm, forgive. Verse 41, Jesus continues. If anyone forces you to go one mile, and goes with them two miles, oh, I'm sorry, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks of you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow to you. At this point, my guest, Jesus, teaching this crowd of people, the audience gasps, because what did Jesus just say? Well, he's not just saying, hey, if anyone wants to go one mile on a walk, go two, do a 5K. He's pointing out a specific Roman law. At this time, Rome ruled the known world, and Rome would go in, and they would basically conquer through strength and might and oppress people that were there. And they had a law that any non-Roman citizen, which the vast majority of the world that they had conquered, were not Roman citizens. Any non-Roman citizen, a Roman soldier, could come up and say, hey, for the next mile, you carry my armor. And every citizen was obligated, I have to go with them. So in other words, think about that in your life. You're trying to make plans, you're, you're running out the door to work, you're supposed to meet people at dinner, and in the first century, you're on your way to dinner, Roman soldier grabs you, and you're walking a mile out of your way, and then you got to walk a mile just to come back and join friends at Pedalicious or wherever they were eating food that night that you were supposed to meet them, and that just totally derails your plans. And Jesus says, hey, when they do that, and I know everyone in here, you, you hate Rome. The racial tension and division was far even stronger or as strong, not stronger in terms of the brute and the brutality of Rome. And Jesus said, hey, when they ask you to go a mile, go two. Radical. New lifestyle that Jesus was calling his people to live out. He said, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven, who sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love only those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? And if you only greet your own people, what are you doing more than others? Don't even pagans or people who do not know God. Jesus just said a Christian's response to those who hate them is love. 
Second idea from the text, a Christian's response to those who hurt them is forgiveness. Christian's response to those who hate them is love. That he said, even to your enemies, I want you to love them. I want you to, when somebody is attacking you, I want you to pray for them. How much would the world change if every person who claimed to be a Christian said, I don't care what you do to me, I'm going to love you. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to give to you. And you can attack me. You can write me off. You can call me a bigot. You can do whatever you want. But I'm going to pray for you. Jesus said, if you are going to follow me, your response in the face of hate is love. Who are we to love? Jesus said, even your enemies. Here's the burden that I feel for this message. Just try to be as real and articulate the heaviness that I feel. We live in a time that is so divided and there's a world where there's industries that literally are committed to creating outrage and division and tribes and dividing and separating based on sex, based on your sexuality, based on the color of your skin, based on the class that you're a part of, based on the story that you have, and trying to pit people against each other and attack, all of which is not new. It's amplified because of the interconnectedness in the world in which we live. What is also not new, but is toxic, is any time that worldly line of thinking, which is, man, I'm going to divide you, I'm going to see you, I'm going to break things down, I'm going to hold things against you, I'm going, to, I'm going to put you in a specific box, hold it against you. When that line of thinking bleeds into the church, it is toxic. And it is happening. And Jesus says, like, let me, let me write out in a way that I know, candidly, some of you guys are just going to write me off because the color of my skin. If you hold animosity or hatred or bitter, bitterness towards any person, you don't look like Jesus. You look like the world. And may I ask, is the way that you see yourself, see your group, see people, more informed by the world around you or the word of God? If you are a Christian, there is no group that has a stronger connection or you are a part of no group that is more important than the fact that you and all of us who are followers of Jesus are one family. And the world around you is gonna sell the lie as they always do. Satan's primary job, always has been, always will be, is to divide. John chapter 10 says, he came to divide. You see division, that's him winning. Racial prejudice. Racial prejudice is divisive. If that needs to be said, will you forgive me? Any person who divides based on the color of skin is not operating underneath the principles of Jesus, but of the world. And that goes in any direction. And he says, you and I, even if they are the worst of the worst, you're to love them. 
And he says specifically how to love them. And he introduces prayer. He says that you and I are to pray for them. Imagine what your life this week would look like. And maybe just the person that is such a jerk to you at the office. And you just go and you're going to decide, you know what? I'm going to start every day praying for this person. And not praying, God, will you smite them and take them out so I can have their job. I'm going to start praying, God, will you bless this person? Will you get a hold of their heart? God, will you save this person? Like they hold against me the fact that I'm a Christian, the fact that I follow you. I know that they treat me different, and I know that they, they honestly, they kind of make fun of me, but God, I just want to pray for them. I want to pray for the family member that really, really hurt me. I want to pray for the friends that I feel like they just totally turned their back on me. God, I, I want to pray. Would you bless them? When Jesus' audience heard prayer, they would have thought, of the Jewish prayer of the day, which is, Lord, will you bless them and keep them, make your face shine on them. This week, when you feel that rising up to go, man, I cannot believe, the Christian response is to say, God, I'm gonna pray for that person. I'm gonna pray that you get a hold of their heart. That if there's areas of their heart and they are a Christian, maybe they could more fully yield to you. I'm gonna pray that you would allow that to happen. Because a Christian's response to those who hate them, who hurt them, is to love. Paul would say this in that same passage in Romans 12. He said, if your enemy is hungry, think about how radical this is. To us, we kind of read it and you're like, oh, it's so nice and not really practical. He says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. By doing so, you'll keep burning coals on his head. Don't overcome evil by evil, but overcome evil with good. Our world is so, again, my heart breaks for the church because the world has always been this way. When the church starts going, hey, you're over here, you're over here, it's tragic. And there's a lot of believers that the mark of the conduct of their life it doesn't look different from the world. They're more influenced by the way the world tells them to think than the word of God says they should. Like this, my, my five-year-old son plays YMCA soccer and we go to the games and was coaching his soccer team and we went to a game and, and um, I got there early and saw the game that was going on before us and the YMCA, because it's five-year-old soccer and I don't know who they put over that, but was, had two teams that had the same color jersey. And five-year-old soccer is already pretty chaotic where it's like, hey, Bobby, no, get back over here. Pull your pants up. Get over here. <laughs> but when both teams have the same color jersey, it's like, okay, this, we just call this a draw and go get Capri Sun because this is no point in playing because they can't tell. Nobody stands out. There's no difference. I can't tell the difference between who's on my team and who's not. And tragically, when it comes to the topic of love and division and hate, there's too many Christians. You got the same jersey as the world around you. You don't stand out. Nobody can tell. You're just right in line. You look like everybody else. When Jesus says, no, 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 I'm introducing something new. My people will be marked by love in the face of hate, in the face of anger, I'll have compassion. Finally, he says this, I tell you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on evil and the good 
and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love only those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? And if you only greet your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. He brings up an interesting topic where he says, hey, I want you to love and pray for those who hurt you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. In other words, I want you to do this to reflect who your Father in heaven is because that's what your Father in heaven does. That's how he treats those who hate him, harm him, his enemies, if you will. Third idea from the text is that a Christian responds the way Christ responded to them. A Christian response to hurt is forgiveness, to those who hate them or harm them is love, and a Christian ultimately responds the way Christ responded to them. He brings up the idea of when you do that, you look like your father in heaven. I can see the family resemblance. When someone hates you, whether it's online, whether it's in person, whether it's behind your back, and you respond in love, it's both supernatural and it shows your family resemblance to your father in heaven. My kids, both times that they were in the womb, you walk through the same thing. I had a girl on my staff that just transitioned today who's going to be a mom. And you're, whenever you're you know, pregnant and going through all those stages, both you and you get these sonograms and you kind of look at the picture and it's like, man, this is like a little tiny alien or something. And you're wondering, like, what are they going to look like? What color hair are they going to have? What facial features are they going to have? Is it a boy? Is it a girl? What color eyes are they going to have? You're just kind of wondering and you're kind of putting it together. And while you don't entirely know, you kind of have a ballpark of, of man, they're going to look something like this. In other words, they're not going to come out, you know, like a cheetah or dotted. And if they're my child, they're going to come out extra Caucasian and pasty. And if they're, you know, your wife, depending on, you just kind of know like, oh, this is going to kind of be what they're going to look like together because they're our children. And they resemble their parents. And the Bible says that those who are children of God resemble their father in heaven. That it's just going to happen. It's not a prerequisite to being a children of God. It's what children of God do because it's impossible for me and my wife to have a baby that has no resemblance to us at all. In the same way, you will not be a child of God, or you are not, if you have no resemblance to your Father in heaven. And one of the ways that you and I resemble him, according to Jesus, is that in the face of hate, you love. In the face of harm, you forgive. That you look people who mistreat you in the eyes, And like Jesus on the cross, you love them. What do I mean on the cross? On the moments he was being killed. In Luke chapter 24, we're told that Jesus is having his nails, or having nails driven through his hands and his feet. And as it's taking place, he looks at these men in the eyes and he says, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. In the face of the worst mistreatment and injustice and horrific act ever, he looks them in the eyes. He prays to God, Father, will you forgive them? And Christians, and it is not easy, maybe simple, but it is only by God's power can you and I extend forgiveness in the face of incredible harm 
And Jesus says, when you do, you look like your Father in heaven. That's the family resemblance coming through. I know in a room like this, there is a lot of hurt represented. And the application for some of you may be, man, you need to get aside by yourself in your car tomorrow when you wake up and you need to walk through and and evaluate who do I need to forgive? Like maybe there's groups of people I like hold something against. Some of you, you do. Maybe there's somebody in your life that you're trying to just push out and you don't want anything to do with. Maybe they're from your past and they're not around anymore, so it's kind of out of sight, out of mind. But if you were honest, you hold something against them. Maybe it was a dating relationship where they took something from you and you at a deep level have hate, anger. Maybe it's justified in terms of like, man, that, that what was done was not right. But you holding on to that anger is only going to hurt you and you need to make the decision, man, I'm going to forgive that person. All of us have the responsibility to ongoing, continually forgive. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 18, Peter said, how many times do I forgive God? He said over and over and over like God forgave you. I have had to walk through this in so many different relationships in, in my life and one of the more meaningful or painful was with my own father and worked through and forgave and my parents split when I was young and he just wasn't around and present. And every now and then there's an, I'll have feelings that will pop up of just like, man, that hurt or that hurts. A month ago, it was a meeting that we do every week at Watermark called Staff Prayer. And a couple hundred of our staff come in for the whole church and we just pray and share things. And at that meeting, we're in this big circle. The guy who was leading the meeting said, hey, you know, we just had Father's Day. Why don't you turn to those who are around you and share some of your favorite memories with your dad? So everybody turned kind of immediately, whoever's sitting next to you. And, um, and I sat in this small circle and they shared. And I sat there and I said, I don't have a memory of one that is a, a, a pleasant memory. I don't have one that comes to mind. And, uh, and I'm, you know, I was fine, it was, it was okay. But if I don't take that to the Lord and say, and I'm choosing to forgive him, that you took from me a dad who was around. I don't have that. You took it. And I can either hold on to that and say, you took from me a memory, a happy memory. I've got tons in this circle. I have a one. And I can either go, and I am holding that against you, and I resent you, and I am angry. Or I can say, God, I'm choosing to release that to you. You don't owe me anymore. He doesn't owe me. And I forgive you. And anytime those emotions come back up, I say, man, I forgive you. Because Jesus said, the response for Christians is to be and respond like Christ responded to them, which is forgiveness and love and mercy. And when they do, land in the plane, they look like their Father in heaven. They look like Jesus. There's a moment in the New Testament that's such a powerful picture of this. It's in Acts chapter 7, and it's 
the very first martyr in Christianity is a guy named Stephen. Stephen was a deacon. A deacon was one of those guys in the early church. He was a leader. He cared for the widows. It's his job. Care for the widows in the church. People who lost their husband, he provided food for them. He's bringing stuff over to the house. He's caring for them. And he is arrested for following Jesus. And they bring him before this court, and they're like, we've heard that you follow Jesus. And, we, and they begin to basically throw all kinds of accusations at him. And he says, yes, Jesus is God. And they call him a blasphemer. And he's the savior of the world. And he died for you, and he died for everyone. And they call him a blasphemer. It says they rip their clothes, and they drag him outside of the city walls, this group of religious men. And they call on him to denounce Christ, and he refuses to. And they pick up rocks, and they begin to stone him. And it says this. As they stoned him, Acts chapter 7, verse 60, then he fell on his knees, and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them, as rock after rock pelted his head until he breathed his last breath. And in the midst of that narrative, something incredibly powerful happens. The only time in the whole scripture that this happens. Stephen says, as rocks are flying towards him, he says, he looks up at the sky and he says, I see heaven opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Standing at the right hand of God. You know, every other place in the Bible, Jesus is told to be standing at, or at the right hand of God. Every one of them has the same thing come. He's seated. He's seated at the right hand of God with one exception in the stoning of Stephen. And Stephen, as he's breathing his last breath, he says, I see the Son of God and he's standing. And scholars have long pointed out it's as though Jesus, in a moment, rises to his feet, giving a standing ovation for in the face of hatred and love and anger. Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. You and I have been called if you're a follower of Jesus. In other words, you've trusted in Jesus in his death and resurrection on the cross, paid for all of your sin, everything messed up you've ever done, and you're forgiven, and he rose from the dead, the payment cleared. And because you believe that, you're going to live forever with him. You and I have been called, and Jesus says, you are not given the option in the face of hurt to not forgive. I am calling you to forgive. In the face of hate, you are called to love. And you can sit there and you can justify it, write it off, and write me off, but you're not writing me off. You're writing him off. That's what he said. Let me pray. Father, I pray for anyone in this room who has hurt that was so terrible and messed up that you came to die for the person who caused that hurt. That you would allow your spirit and grace to bring forgiveness about. I pray for just us as the body of Christ. Would you help us to be those who look like you in the face of anger, hatred, attacks? Would you give us the strength to respond like Jesus did, would? 
Would you unify your church, your bride, who you bought and you ransomed from every tribe and every tongue and every nation, and that forever and ever and ever will be a family together? Would the voices of the word of God, the voice of the word of God, be louder in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds than the world around us? And that we would love even our enemies. In Christ's name, amen.